Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do want to thank you again for the opportunity to come today and hear from your word. Prepare our hearts and our minds, Lord, to be still and know you. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for Daniel and his example to us. Help us to examine our lives, Lord, that we might be living purposeful lives, Lord, that we will be decisive in what we decide we're going to do before we're ever confronted with the test, that we might please you, that we might be good examples to those around us. It is a great privilege to be a Christian, and it is a great challenge. We, are, we can't do it without drawing from the Holy Spirit's power to each day in order to help us do that. We pray for each of these ladies over the holidays that they would be that example for you with a very grateful heart for what Jesus did for us in coming to earth for us. And Lord, may we each return back in January with an um, excitement to get back into the word and back in fellowship with one another. Keep us safe, Lord, and in your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Our last meeting of 2015, when we come back, it's going to be a brand new year. So when you leave today, remind me to say, see you next year. I always like saying that. Um, thank you for your prayers. Wanda, I keep forgetting to thank you for that beautiful poem. And I'm going to put that in our Daniel book, by the way. Do I have your permission to do that? And I meant to make a copy and read it all to you, but um, I will. She wrote a wonderful poem on Daniel that... Uh, I, I, I want to put in our book when we put it all together. Everybody has a handout, right? You're going to be needing to look at this as we talk this morning, so have that ready. That is our outline of the book so far. Um, I did want to thank you so much for your prayers for our short trip out to California to see our son who is in the military. He's renting a house there in uh, Hanford, California. You've probably never heard of it. It's about an hour north of Fresno, but we had a wonderful time, but I did want to share a little story about our return trip, and this just goes to show you why we needed your prayers. <laughs> we passed through the TSA security with no problem out of Raleigh, but on our way back in Fresno, my husband got stopped by the TSA agents, and I was still putting my boots on, and I was looking over there, and they had his black carry-on, and they were going through it with a fine-tooth comb, looking at the screen, and then the woman dumped everything out of it, and she was going through it. And then they call him over, and all these agents start circling him. <laughs> and I'm over there going, oh, dear. Well, about two months ago, he had bought some shotgun shells and robins and threw them in that black bag. That's like his purse bag he carries. It's a businessman's bag, but he carries it everywhere. He completely forgot they were in there. And that is a no-no. I mean, that is, that's like carrying a gun, they say. And so they had all these guys come around and started interviewing him, asked him for his driver's license. He gave them his military license because he is... Uh, retired Navy captain, which is uh, 06. It's pretty high up there, so, you know, I thought maybe that would help. And then I was standing by because I thought, well, they'll see he's got this sweet wife, you know. 
<laughs> it delayed us about 40 minutes. These two big buff policemen came out of the woodwork. I don't know, there was this door, and then all of a sudden they come out with their guns and everything, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, dear. So he's surrounded by about 10 different guys, and I took my, little my phone. <laughs> I took my phone out and click, took a picture and sent it to all of our children saying, uh-oh, pray, Daddy's about to be arrested. <laughs> My son was on his way back to the base. He had dropped us off, and he said, do I need to turn around and come back and, and rescue him? Because he's got high security clearance, you know. Anyhow, they finally let him go. I don't know if he's on the no-fly list or not. <laughs> I guess we'll find out next time we travel somewhere. This was, this was at least, this was before the Paris, the awful Paris incident. Um, but then we, we get to, I, I was afraid we are going to miss our flight. We, we get to our gate and we're sitting there, and fortunately, our flight was delayed. Thank you for your prayers, or we would have missed our flight. <laughs> but we're sitting there waiting to board the plane, and he gets a phone call on his cell, and it's the police. And they said, we need to know where you were born. And I said, tell him Yemen. Nice wife. Anyway, that's how we celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary. <laughs> Never a boring moment. Anyway, it did make for a lot of good laughs, and I do hope he's not on some list. I don't know. No, 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 no. They confiscated those. Yes, definitely. All right. Well, but I did thank all the security agents. I really thanked them. I said, thank you for being so thorough. And what really bothered me was that they let us go in Raleigh. Okay. They didn't see him in Raleigh. So, and I said, thank you. Thank you for being so thorough here. We live in perilous times, don't we? Oh, this thing with Paris is just horrible. And it's just a matter of time before something's going to happen here. I hate to say that, but you know, it's evident, isn't it? It's just evident with our forest borders and everything. So, we need a lot of prayer. All right, we're on lesson number eight, the dream test. With Daniel chapter two, we enter into, and if you look at your outline there that I passed out, we're going to enter into the second major division of the book of Daniel. We're going to be looking at chapters two to seven for quite some time. Well, I'm sure all the way through the end of the year in May. We have covered already Daniel's personal history. See, the whole book is divided just into three major divisions. Chapter 1 was Daniel's personal history. Now we're entering into the second part, which is called Daniel, I've called it, Daniel's prophetic history of Gentile nations. That's going to be chapters 2 to 7. And then one day we'll get down to Daniel's prophetic history of Israel. That will be chapters 8 to 12. Um, until now, in chapter 1, we have been looking at Daniel and just his personal history. We learned um, about the character of Daniel and also, of course, his three friends, but primarily Daniel. We learned why he was a captive in Babylon and how he came to be in the service of the mighty Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. It took very little time for us to realize that Daniel shined head and shoulders above all the others who were taken captive with him from Judah. He was a natural leader. He was unusually bold for his God. But he was not bold in an obnoxious way, was he? He was very wise in his boldness and very gentle. 
His level of commitment for the word of God and the law of God was extraordinary. He purposed to obey God over men, regardless of the cost to him personally, which he well knew could have meant his own life. He purposed not to compromise when it came to the clear commands of God, and he passed with flying colors what we could call the diet test. <laughs> I have not passed that one yet. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about life. I remember when we studied the life of Abraham, how I thought his life was just one series of tests. Well, guess what? All of our lives are one series of tests. As soon as you pass one test, God gives us another test. Yep. Test after test after test. So I was thinking of D's because his name is Daniel. All right. Daniel, since we have met him as a young teenager, has passed the deportation test. He was deported from everything that was familiar to him, his family, his homeland, his, his temple, everything. Deported from Jerusalem over to Babylon. He passed the desert test, I guess you could say, because he had to pass through the desert to get over to Babylon. Um, and he maintained a good testimony, a good spirit. Notice any bitterness in him. He also, when he got to Babylon, he encountered what we could call the deformity test because he was castrated. He was emasculated. And then he passed, as we looked at last time, the diet test. Okay, so a lot of tests. And he also passed the diploma test because he graduated at the top of his class uh, following three years of training and a very difficult final exam that was given by who? By whom? By the king himself, Nebuchadnezzar gave that final exam. And his assessment was that the four Hebrew youth, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, were not only at the top of the class of their own peers, their own Jewish peers, but they were ten times better than all of the magicians and astrologers that were in all of Babylon. That's amazing. Was Nebuchadnezzar impressed with these Jewish lads? Absolutely. He was super impressed with them. Well, with this lesson, we are going to begin our discussion of Daniel chapter 2. We will be in Daniel 2 probably all through January when we get back, because this is a very, very important chapter. It contains one of the most famous and comprehensive prophecies in Scripture. It's important to understand this prophecy because it sets straight a lot of eschatological doctrine. So we're going to be here. This is very important, as is also, I'd say it's one of the most important in all of the Bible, along with Daniel chapter 7. The two are parallel. They give us the same period of time. It's yet another chapter that presents us, we're going to see, with a serious life or death crisis for Daniel and for his friends in what we are, going, what we are calling the dream test. That is the title for this message. So it's another test, um, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 to 13 of chapter 2. The four young Jewish youth recently graduated from the Babylonian, what did we call it? The Babylonian Brainwashing Academy. They have just been elevated as royal advisors to the king. 
So they are now included in the category known as the wise men of Babylon. Look with me at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. It says, For this cause the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And verse 13 tells us this includes Daniel. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. That's our, three, uh, our four friends. They're included now because they graduated at the top of the class. They were made wise men, and so they're included in this uh, death decree. They find themselves innocently included in a horrific death decree issued by the king for all of his wise men. So another crisis, you know, from one crisis to another. But before we get to the events that led up to that dream test, I want to talk about the next six chapters of this next division of the book. Chapters 2 to 7, that's six chapters. In these next six chapters, God presented his program for the time of Gentile supremacy, when Gentile nations and empires would be ruling the world, and by their rule over the world, they would be oppressing Israel. It's, he's using the Gentile empires to chastise his people, the nation of Israel. Jesus gave this period of time the title. We don't find it in Daniel. Jesus gave us the title in Luke 21, 24, and he calls it the times of the Gentiles or the times of the nations. He said that in this period of time, Jerusalem will be trodden down. Jerusalem, speaking of Israel, would be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now that period of time began with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian captivity when they took Israel captive. It began with the Babylonian Empire and it will extend all the way to the time of the Lord's second coming when he comes back to establish his literal kingdom um, on earth for a thousand years. During this long, and that's the period of time we're still in today. We're still in the times of the Gentiles. And during this long period of time, of this history, true believers, both Jews and Gentiles, find themselves persecuted by unbelievers. And the Lord gave all of this information in these next six chapters. And he did so by different methods. For example, in chapter 2, as we'll begin to look at this morning, he gave a dream. Who did he give the dream to? Nebuchadnezzar. The dream is actually an outline of this times of the Gentiles. So he gave it by way of a dream. And then in um, chapters 3 and 6, we find that he gave examples from real-life persecutions of believers, he gave an example to us that during this time of the Gentiles, his people would be persecuted. We see two real-life persecution experiences of believers. We see the furnace, the fiery furnace experience of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and we see the lion's den persecution of Daniel. Those are verse, uh, chapters 3 and 6. Then we have some real-life judgments of two pagan kings. Now, during this long extended period of the Gentiles, would God judge some of those evil Gentile nations and their rulers? Yes, and he gives us a picture of that by judging two of those Gentile rulers. 
One was Nebuchadnezzar. He was judged, chastened really, in, uh, for seven years when he became a beast. We could call that a beastly experience for Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he fortunately came out of that and bowed his knee and accepted the Lord. He was saved. But the other one who was judged, we could call the banquet experience, was Belshazzar, his grandson, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. He did not bow the knee. But, they, but both the empire was judged. So during the times of the Gentiles, yes, God will be judging the Gentile nations. And their rulers are accountable to him for how they lead their people. And that is in chapters 4 and 5. The last way he gave us a picture of this times of the Gentiles was in a vision that he gave to Daniel himself. That's in chapter 7. And that vision corresponds to the dream of chapter 2. They're actually the same panoramic view of Gentile history from Babylon to the second coming. Except in chapter 2, the dream given to Nebuchadnezzar is really seen, and I've got this on your outline, from man's perspective. The dream was of a colossal statue, an image, huge. You know, and it, it was made of all these metals, gold and silver, bronze and iron, and iron mixed with clay. And uh, it was magnificent. So that's how man perceives the empires of the world, as, as great and mighty and, and uh, uh, precious, you know, metals and just strong, yes, stupendous. That's how the world looks at the powers of the world. But how does God see these Gentile powers that would dominate the world in many times evil ways and persecute his people? He sees them the way he gave the vision to Daniel, as beasts, vicious, bloodthirsty beasts. It's very interesting. The, and also, if you study this outline, um, now I made up the little words, but if you see under Daniel's prophetic history of Gentile nations, if you see how, how the Holy Spirit did this, you understand, I mean, this is like a poem. This is just beautiful. You, you come to realize that this, this was not just the work of a man. This was God, the Holy Spirit, inspiring him. And unlike the critics who say that it was written by more than one author, etc., it just cannot be because there's so much beauty in this. He goes like from the dream A, A and F correspond. Do you see that on your own? A and F correspond. Then you've got B and E that correspond because those are the persecutions. And then you've got C and E that correspond. Uh, I'm not sure I'm getting that right. No, E and B. Anyway, it goes like this. Book ends, these two correspond, then these two, the next two correspond, and the next two. It's just beautiful. It's perfect. Take it home and look at it, and then you'll get what I'm talking about because I'm a little confused up here. But um, anyhow, we know that God the Holy Spirit inspired Daniel to write this. All right. If Daniel's people ever needed a glimpse of hope, it was at this time. Remember we read that the, the Jewish people hung their harps on the willow trees. Their song was gone. There was no joy in their hearts. They were captives in a foreign pagan land. If ever they needed to have a glimpse of hope, it was at this time. They must have wondered, the Jews must have wondered what lay ahead for them as a people. Would they ever return to their land? See, they didn't have their own individual copies of God's word, so they couldn't really search and see that 
Jeremiah had said they'd only be there for 70 years. It really wasn't until chapter 9 that Daniel reads that and realizes they'd only be there for 70 years. So they must have wondered, would Jerusalem be rebuilt? Would they ever worship again at their temple, which had been burned to the ground? Or was their fate sealed when Babylon carried them off and burned their holy city? Well, God knew because he's omniscient, he knew their need for hope at this time of his chastisement upon them. You know, why are they in Babylon to begin with? Because he's chastening them, isn't he? For having turned from him to false gods. But in his infinite mercy, even in his chastening, he knew they needed hope. And so he gave this very, very special dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. And how ironic is that? <laughs> How ironic is it that God gave the dream of hope for a brighter future for Israel and the dream of strong warning to the nations of the earth to the very king who destroyed Jerusalem and carried the Jewish people off to captivity. Isn't that ironic? Doesn't the Lord work in mysterious ways? Yep, well, he certainly does. Well, also I want to point out that in Daniel 2.4, with the words of the Chaldeans to the king, where they say, O king, live forever, with those words, we switch from Hebrew to Aramaic. Daniel wrote the first chapter and the first four verses of chapter 2 in Hebrew, and then in chapter 2, verse 4, he switched to, switches to Aramaic. It's called in the King James Syriac, but that's the ancient name for Aramaic. It was the international language at that time. Just as Greek was the international language at the time of Christ, what is the international language of the world today? English. Back in the Babylonian days here, um, the international language was Aramaic. It was the diplomatic and business language that was understood by both Gentiles and Jews. So the original text is in Aramaic from this point, from chapter 2, verse 4, until the end of chapter 7. So instead of saying, well, the original Hebrew word means this, I'm going to be saying the original Aramaic word means such and such. And the reason for this, that these chapters, these next six chapters are in Aramaic, is likely because they are the chapters that deal primarily with what? The times of the Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't know Hebrew. They did know Aramaic. This would be the time of God's rule over the Gentiles, using the Gentiles also to dominate over Israel. So the Spirit led Daniel to write these chapters in the language that the Gentiles could understand. Now, the Jews could also understand Aramaic. So it was for everybody, but he was making sure that the Gentiles could also read these chapters. On the other hand, the contents of chapters 8 to 12 of Daniel, are they switch back to Hebrew. Now, why would that be? Well, because those last chapters, 8 to 12, deal more primarily with Israel. We'll discuss her future Gentile oppressors, her coming Messiah, and also God's plan for her ultimate redemption. So you see how perfect all that is? All right, so let's look now at Daniel's prophetic history of Gentile nations sub, under the subtitle of Nebuchadnezzar's Dream of a four-part image, and in this section, if you look at your outline, you see we're going to be discussing four subsections. The dictator's insomnia, that's our subject matter for today. Then Daniel's intervention, 
We'll talk about that when we come back, Lord willing, in January. Then the divine interpretation will be a long time probably in that interpretation. And then the dictator is influenced by what he hears about his dream. So that's where we're going. Now today's lesson, you see dictators insomnia. We're going to be discussing four subdivisions of that. That's why I needed to show you this because you'd never follow me otherwise. <laughs> we're going to talk about the dream, the demand, the dilemma, which actually I've changed. It's going to be called Wait a minute, what is it? The defense. That third part I've changed to call the defense. The dream, the demand, the defense, and the decree. So let's start out by reading verses 1 to 3, the dream. Look with me at chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams. Do you notice that's plural? Dreams. Wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. That means he had insomnia. He couldn't get back to sleep. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show his, the king his dreams, plural. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream. Now notice that's singular. I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Singular again. What is the difference between a dream and a vision? A God-given dream and a God-given vision? It's really simple. A dream is given by God when a person is sleeping. Yes, right. <laughs> and a vision is while they're awake. Uh, dreams are when God communicated his message to someone while they were asleep. And some of his God revelations were given to pagans such as Nebuchadnezzar, such as Pharaoh in Egypt. Remember the dream of the seven lean cows and the seven fat cows? All right, visions, on the other hand, are when God presented certain scenes, truths, circumstances to the mind of a prophet when he was awake. He was awake. And I can't think of a single vision that was given to a pagan. If you can think of one in the scripture, let me know. I thought and thought and thought, and I couldn't think. Every vision I could think of was given to a, a true believer, a prophet of God, whereas dreams could be and were given sometimes to pagans. Um, all of this was before the scripture was complete. All right, so if you have a dream or a vision, and I know we all have dreams. I don't know how many have visions, but... <laughs> <laughs> if you have one, please don't come to me and tell me God spoke this to you and it's, it's added revelation, all right? I'll just probably say, well, keep that to yourself. Maybe you had too much pizza last night before you went to bed. Anyhow, the reference, notice right away in verse 1, there is a reference to the event of his dream, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and its interpretation occurring in what year? The second year of his reign. Well, that statement raises the question of how this relates to the three-year training of Daniel and his friends in that Babylonian brainwashing academy. You see, since Daniel, we know, by the time of this dream, he has already been elevated to the position of a wise man in Babylon, a royal advisor. Uh, um, so we ask how the dream-related events could have occurred in the king's second year of reign, since we know when Daniel was carried off captive to Babylon, it was the first year of King 
you know, King Nebuchadnezzar. That's the year he became king. It was 605 B.C. Um, and his training was three years long. So how could it just be this? Are you following me? How could it be the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's just finished three years of training? So the critics read this and they jump all over it and they say, see, aha, we told you there's errors in, in the book of Daniel. But as we discussed back in the very first verse of this book, remember Daniel 1.1 with regard to the year of King Jehoiakim's reign when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem because Daniel told us it was the, uh, the what year? The third year of King Jehoiakim's reign and Jeremiah said it was the second year and the critics again love that because they say a discrepancy in the scripture. Well, we, we discussed the fact that Daniel, he wrote his book at the end of his life, near the very end of his life, after he had been living in Babylon some 75 years. So by that time, he used the Babylonian method of reckoning a king's reign. The Babylonians, unlike the Hebrews, and Jeremiah used Hebrew reckoning for a king's reign, but the Babylonians did not count the entire first year of a new king's reign as, his, as a year of his reign. What did they call it? His year of accession to the throne. So Nebuchadnezzar, and you can see this. I put this down at the bottom of your handout, the chronology of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and Daniel's three-year training. Um, Nebuchadnezzar had been in his kingly office over three years, technically, by the time he had this dream. It was the third year of his reign by Hebrew reckoning. And, and that's all that's really important because he was there three years and that's sufficient time for the three years of training for, for Daniel. And yet, according to Babylonian reckoning, he was in his second year of training. So you get that? There's no discrepancy, there's no problem there at all. And that little chart, if you study that, you'll see that that's absolutely the case. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar, from the world's perspective, he held the loftiest position a man could hold, right? He was the head honcho of the leading empire of the world at that time. It doesn't get any higher than that. Now, I wouldn't want that position, would you? No way would I want that position, but from man's perspective, that's as high as you can get. He was the world's greatest ruler, and yet all of his power and all of his prestige did not give him what you and I have. I hope you have peace. He did not have peace. He just couldn't lay his head down at night, cast all his cares upon the one who never slumbers in sleep and just go to sleep, entrusting his sovereign. And so he had, he had problems. When he went to bed, he couldn't fall asleep. He was troubled about the future. Because um, we learn this from verse 29. Just flip ahead and let's take a sneak preview at verse 29, where Daniel is before the king, and he's talking to the king. And Daniel says this in verse 29, As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter? I suppose night after night, as the king went to his bedchamber, he couldn't fall asleep because he was concerned, he was worried about what? What should come to pass hereafter? That's something that all the unsaved should be concerned about. They really should. I was troubled about that for many years. That's actually what led me to the Lord. I couldn't fall asleep at night because I wondered what would happen to me in the hereafter. 
Many ancient rulers were assassinated. He had a lot to be troubled about. Sometimes they were assassinated in their bed. <laughs> Many encountered rebellions against them, even by their most trusted counselors, some of them even by their own children, their sons. The Lord God had revealed to Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar was worried about the future. He likely wondered how long he would be able to maintain his grip on the then known world of that time. And the scripture says in verse 1 that he dreamed dreams. That's plural. He had more than one dream. He may have had more than one dream that particular night. We don't know. Or, here's another possibility, he may have been having the same dream night after night after night. The verb tense actually reads that he had dreamed had dreamed dreams. So it sounds like every time he went to bed, he had this same dream. But whatever he dreamed was of such significance that it troubled his spirit. The Hebrew word, now we're still in Hebrew. We don't turn to Aramaic until verse 4. Hebrew word is pa'am. Um, it denotes deep apprehension, being disturbed and even frightened. Have you ever had a, a very frightening dream that maybe woke you up in the middle of the night? You couldn't go back to sleep. You couldn't forget it. I've had several of those, and I, one that stands out for years and years. I think I was maybe nine years old or something, eight or nine years old when I was just a little girl, and I had a dream. Um, you know, I come from Chicago where there's a lot of skyscrapers, and I was in an elevator at the top of a skyscraper, and the elevator... It was loose or something, and it just fell all the way to the first floor. And I was in it, and I went splat <laughs> when it hit the bottom. Yeah, they have rides that do. Yeah, they do. <laughs> and I don't go in them. Um, and I was dead. And I, I was above my own body looking down at my body. I guess that's what they call an out-of-body out of experience or whatever. I'm not putting too much into this. It was a dream, okay? But I've never forgotten it. It woke me up. I couldn't go back to sleep. I woke my mom and dad up and told them about it, and they, you know, whatever. But you all have dreams that are, are frightening, sort of, and um, I'm still kind of apprehensive when I go into an elevator. But uh, this dream, it, it frightened him. Apparently, one particular dream, because I had, he says, I have dreamed a dream. It was exceptional, and it's going to be this dream that we concentrate on for the rest of the narrative. Now, there would be two factors about this dream that would have been upsetting for the king. One factor was the subject of the dream. Now, what did he dream? He dreamt of this massive image, this statue, that had been, um, we could say, probably rather frightening not only in its size, because it was colossal, but its appearance. I mean, you know, head of gold and chest of um, uh, silver and then brass and, and the big legs and toes of mixed iron and clay, etc. And it was, you know, probably frightening. It says that it was brilliantly bright because it's standing out there in the sunlight of Babylon and the sun is hitting on it and probably had a squint to even look at it. And what was probably the most frightening about it was that this big stone cut out without hands comes falling from the sky and it hits the image and the whole thing comes crumbling to the ground. Now, Nebuchadnezzar might have thought, ooh, I wonder if that represents me, you know? So he's frightened about the subject. He's troubled in his spirit about the subject of the dream. The other thing would be the sovereign of the dream that would cause him to be 
troubled in his spirit. The king had gone to bed night after night wondering about the future, and it was Almighty God who responded with a revelation that got the king's attention. It was God, the sovereign, who agitated the king's spirit by way of the dream because he sovereignly planned to use Daniel. Now, what special gift had he already given to Daniel? Not of interpreting enemas, right? <laughs> if you weren't here last time, you're going, what is she talking about? <laughs> but he gave him a gift of interpreting dreams, all right, and visions. So God had orchestrated all this. He sovereignly planned to use Daniel to tell the king his dream, interpret it for him, and then to record it as prophetic history in the eternal word of God for the benefit of all who have read it ever since, including us here today. Now, many people have wondered why God revealed such a great and significant dream, a most important prophecy regarding the future of, of the history of the world, really, until the Lord's second coming, why did he give this significant prophetic dream to a pagan king? Why did he give the privilege of such a critical revelation to an evil man? Why didn't he give it to Daniel, a godly man, like he does in chapter 7 with the vision? Or why didn't he at least give it to Hananiah, Azariah, or Mishael? Why did he give it to an egotistical pagan king? You got any answers for that? Well, here's some potential possibilities for why he did it. You see, from God's perspective, Israel was worse, and this might shock you, but Israel was worse morally and spiritually than the Babylonians. Why? Remember what Jesus said to Gal the Galilean cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum? He said, woe unto you, you know, it's going to be more tolerable for those of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. What was the reason for that? Because they were more accountable, because they had greater privilege. You see, the Jewish people had the truth. They had their covenant promises with God. They had his truth and his word, and yet what had they done? They had forsaken it. They had forsaken him, turned to false gods. They had become apostate. Many of the Jewish people had turned to false gods, which is why they're in Babylon in the first place. And so, by giving the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, God is really rebuking the Jews for their sin. Also, the captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah to Babylon began this period that Jesus called the times of the Gentiles, or the times of the nations. So, it was really fitting that as, he, as it began that the outline for this period of time, which is what this dream is, it's an outline, that it should be given to a Gentile king. Actually, the king of the empire that started this whole times of the Gentiles. So that's very appropriate, isn't it? It's very fitting. Third reason is God is sovereign, and he can choose whoever he wants to choose uh, to impart his revelation. Two. That was a really bad sentence, but it's his choice who he gives his revelation to. He had revealed future events to pagan rulers before, as we already talked about, Pharaoh of Egypt back in Genesis 41. And he had even used unbelievers to speak some of his prophecies. If he can use a donkey, guess what? <laughs> he can use anyone. Um, 
Who did he use? Remember to speak a prophecy, a real evil man who was the head of Israel. High priest named Caiaphas. Remember when Caiaphas in John 11, um, 50 said, it is expedient that one man die for the nation. That was prophetic. So God can use whoever he wants to. However, take note of this next statement of mine. Although the Lord may have sovereignly elected to use pagan people on occasion in the process of giving forth his divine revelation, it was always, always, always by the actual hand and the mind and the heart and the soul of a believer that his message was written in the word of God or that a dream, a prophetic dream was interpreted. Who interpreted Pharaoh's dream? Joseph. Who interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Daniel. Who wrote down Pharaoh's dream? Moses. Who wrote down Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Daniel. Okay? So always by the hand of a believer and always by way of the interpretation of a believer. Well, sleepless in Seattle... Now, I mean, sleepless in Babylon, the agitated king summoned into his presence four classifications of the wise men of Babylon uh, to assist him with his dilemma concerning his disturbing dream. And the four categories of wise men that are given to us are that they were magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. So let's look real quickly at each one of these divisions of wise men. The magicians, now in Hebrew, still in Hebrew when he gives us these words, in Hebrew the word is khartoum. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but um, it sounds like cartoon to me. <laughs> and I picture Mickey Mouse, you know, with a, that hat on and the wand. All right, well, magicians referred to engravers or writers uh, or one who uses magic. Um, the Babylonian magicians were always associated with a pen in their hand to record. They recorded the royal records of, of Babylon, which included both political and religious records. They used their pens to write um, charts of the stars and to write magical potions, you know, incantations or whatever. But they always are associated with a pen in their hand. Isn't that interesting? Because when we think of a magician, what do you think in his hand? Of his, I don't know if this is the origination of a wand, but they, they, had, um, they had pens. They designed the stars on charts in order to interpret dreams and to answer questions that were asked of them about the future. Well, then the word for astrologers is ASAP, like as soon as possible except with two S's, A-S-S-A-P, and it refers to those who studied the movements of the heavenly bodies. We've talked about this before. They believe that the movement of the sun and the moon and the stars actually affected a person's um, personality and therefore their future. This is where horoscopes come from. And don't do horoscopes, all right? It's cultic. The term ASAP also refers to those who used incantations to communicate with the spirit world or with the dead. They were known also as soothsayers or necromancers. You know what that means? Necromancers comes from the, they spoke with the dead. 
Were they really speaking with the dead? No, they were speaking with fallen spirits, evil spirits, demons. And they were called uh, conjurers, different names for them. Sorcerers, that's the word mechasepim. They were wizards who actually practiced witchcraft or sorcery. They would cast spells on people, and they used their witchcraft to gain their own power. You know, listen to me, obey me, give me money, or I'm going to cast a spell on you. Of course, they were engaged with and influenced with evil spirits, weren't they? They, too, supposedly communicated with the dead. They were spiritualists, enchanters. They were the mediums of that day. What is a medium? Someone who, right, who, who comes, mediates between the spirit world or the world of the dead and the world of the living. This is all very evil. It's all occultic. It's all demonic. Well, Chaldeans, the Hebrew word is kasdim. They were a special class of wise men or priests who studied the stars, and they served as the elite leaders of all the occult advisors. They were always the ones we'll see as we go through this narrative. They're always the ones who speak directly to the king on the behalf of all of the wise men. They came from a small group of people who originally lived in southern Babylonia, that area called Chaldea. Remember Abraham? Where did he come from? Ur of the Chaldees. Well, when Nabopolassar, who was Nebuchadnezzar's father, when he rose to prominence in the Babylonian kingdom, he had come from that area, Chaldee. When he rose in prominence, the Chaldeans rose with him. Now, these four groups of wise men were considered really the religious leaders of the Babylonian empire. We could say they were comparable to the Sadducees and the Pharisees of Israel. They specialized in knowing all about all their various gods and goddesses and the future destiny that those gods had determined for the king and for his subjects and for his empire. They were the self-proclaimed psychics of that day. And all of these categories of men practiced divination. Divination is uh, the interpretation of signs and omens to determine the future. So these guys, you know, they're the specialists. If you want to know the future, you go to them. Okay, some, some would read the stars, as we already mentioned. Some would read smoke, you know, the smoke as it rose from burning incense. Some would make interpretations about the future from the pattern that was made when they would pour oil on top of water. You can picture patterns, you know, and um, like under your car when you have an oil spillage, you go there and you could read the omens, you know, tell the future from the oil spill on the water. Some would open up dead animals and make their prognostications from the, the guts, the entrails of the, the animals. You know what? I am so glad that I have this book. <laughs> to tell me the future, and I don't need to go and cut open a dead animal. Anyway, did you know, this is interesting, I did not realize this till this week, but did you know that the prophet Ezekiel actually describes for us the divining, divining, divination, divining, yeah, I guess that's how you would say it, the divining methods that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, liked to use the most. Ezekiel tells us that. 
Ezekiel 21, 21. Here's what he tells us. He says, for the king of Babylon, that's Nebuchadnezzar. For the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way at the head of the two ways to use divination. What does that mean? It means when Nebuchadnezzar had to make a choice, all right, he stands at the parting of two ways. And he thinks, oh, do I go right or do I go left? And so here's, here's how he would make his choice. He had three favorite divination methods. And the first one, Ezekiel tells us, is that he made his arrows bright. What? <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second. Second way, he consulted with images. And the third way, he looked into the liver. <laughs> wow. Well, the term, he made his arrows bright. It refers to what is called, and if you've ever heard of this word, you get a gold star for the day. All right, you ready? Have you ever heard of belomancy? Anybody? Belomancy. Either had I. I had to have my husband look up to even tell me how to pronounce it. He'd never heard of it. It is the use, the use of arrows like uh, for divination purposes. No wonder we never heard of it. Um, it's the use of arrows for casting lots. You see, the one who sought divine directions like Nebuchadnezzar from the gods would tag arrows with little messages. Okay, so let's say he says, I don't know which way to go. Um, and so he would put on one arrow the little note, turn right, another arrow, turn left, another arrow, go backwards, another one goes straight, go up, go down, you know, then he put all the arrows in his quiver and shake it up, you know, like dice, then pour it out, and the first arrow that reached the ground, you'd read it, okay, I go right. That's belomancy, belomancy. Now you've learned a new word, belomancy. Ask your husbands if they know what belomancy is. <laughs> They'll really think a lot of you that you know. All right. Anyway, that was his first method. The second method, he said, um, Ezekiel tells us, is that he would consult with images. I can't talk. That speaks of using small idols to deliver oracles through a medium. So he would go to these little statues, these little idols, God so-and-so, Nebu or whatever, you know, and a medium would say, okay, this idol says to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, go left. <laughs> All right, and then the third way he, was, he would use to find out what he should do is he'd look into the liver, <laughs> which speaks of, it speaks of reading the colors or the markings in the livers of dead sheep. Really weird. Anyway, many have wondered why Daniel and his companions were not included in this group that appeared before the king when he told him about the dream. Um, since they had been added to the group of wise men. Now, take note of this. They are not priests. They are not participators in the occultic practices of all the other guys. All right? But why weren't they there since they're now considered wise men? Well, the most obvious reason would be that when the call went out among the wise men to appear before the king, and remember, they don't know why they're going. 
Maybe they think you know, he's going to tell them really something very important or, or give them all a promotion. They have no idea why they're called before the king. But these wise men did not tell the Jewish captives about the call. Nebuchadnezzar's assessment of those young lads upon their graduation ceremony, you can make sure, be sure that that did not make them very popular with this proud group of older men. You know, that the king had just said these young guys are ten times better than them? You know that they weren't very popular. Jealousy and contempt likely played a part in them purposely not getting word to the Jewish monotheistic newcomers. I mean, they were the newcomers on the block. They only believed in one God. They did not believe in their gods, and they did not practice their occult um, divination things, okay? So they didn't tell them about it. That's why they're not there. But with all the other various wise men assembled before him, and there would have been a lot. There would be many, many of them. I don't know how many, but a lot of men before the king. He makes his announcement that he had dreamed a dream. Verse 3. He used a singular, a dream, and the dream in that same verse. So there's obviously one dream that really shook him up. And the Chaldeans, who were the most elite of the, all the, the wise men, and they're the leaders, they, they spoke out. And, of course, they're eager to please their agitated king. I'm sure as soon as they saw him, maybe he was there in his nightcap, in his gown, you know, <laughs> and they could tell he's agitated. It's not a good thing when King Nebuchadnezzar is agitated. So they, they address him with the typical fluffy courtesy of eastern courts, and they say, Oh, king, live forever. And this is where we switch to Aramaic. So let's look at the demand, verses 4 to 9. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, or Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If ye will not make known unto me the dream... With the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill. Nice guy, huh? But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, you shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. And he knew that's what they really wanted. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show the interpretation of it. The king answered and said, I know of certainty that ye would gain the time. You're stalling for time. Because ye see the thing is gone from me. But if ye will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. In other words, till I forget about this thing, change my mind about my decree. Look at this. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that she can show me the interpretation thereof. Well, after the Chaldeans' polite, courteous address to the king, O king, live forever, which was very hypocritical for two reasons. Number one, they knew he would not live forever, and number two, they did not really want him to live forever. <laughs> they might have been planning to assassinate him that very night after he gave this decree. Um, 
but after their little address, then they confidently promise him that they will be able to interpret his dream. All he needs to do is what? Tell them the dream. Tell us the dream, and we have every confidence in the world with all our little methods that we'll be able to interpret it for you. But then came the shock, didn't it? Because he tells them, the thing is gone from me. He told them if they didn't make known to him the dream with the interpretation, he would have them dismembered. Ugh. That would be limb by limb, finger by finger, you know, while they're alive. Just awful, awful, awful. And their houses would be made dunghills. But on the other hand, if they did show him the dream, if they told him his dream and they interpreted it rightly, he would give them rich rewards. Now, the phrase in verse 5 where it says, the thing is gone from me. This is the key. This has been much debated, this little phrase, by Bible scholars. In Aramaic, the, the words gone from me is one word in Aramaic. It's azda, A-Z-D-A. And that particular Aramaic word has never been found in any other ancient literature. It only appears here in verse 5 and again in verse 8. So there has been some trouble trying to figure out exactly what he was saying. But most, now this is going to be different from when I taught this book 29 years ago, um, where I said that he had forgotten his dream. He couldn't remember it at all. But there's been a lot of change in Bible commentators based on the study of this one Aramaic word. And I would say that 90% of the Bible commentators are now going with the interpretation that says, he said, this thing is certain with me. They say that word azda means certain. Now, the way the King James reads it, it sounds like the, the dream had left the king, right? does sound like the thing is gone from me. I can't remember it. Um, however, based on that word azda, meaning certain, others are now saying that Nebuchadnezzar was telling his wise men that his decree is certain. It's final. If they don't tell him his dream and interpret it, they're going to suffer the deadly consequences. Now, a support, before you leave me and say, oh, no, 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 L listen to me, okay? The support for the interpretation that says Nebuchadnezzar had not forgotten his dream is found in one support. I'm going to give you some more. But one is found in the response that the wise men give to him upon hearing his decree. If they had understood, now remember, they know Aramaic. So if they had understood the king to mean that he had indeed forgotten his dream, now, knowing that their lives are in serious jeopardy, they doubtless would have ventured at least some guess as to what his dream was. So if, he, if they understood, he said, I can't remember my dream at all. Tell me what it was. Well, they're going to be cut in pieces if they don't come up with something. So they could have just made a guess. You know, well, you were in an elevator and you fell to the bottom floor. <laughs> And here's the interpretation of it. I mean, wouldn't you have done that? Wouldn't you have at least have made some guess about what his dream was? You know, maybe you're fly. A lot of people dream flying, you know, some kind of guess. Um, by the fact that they did not make up a dream, it stands to reason that they understood that he did know his dream, but he wanted them to tell him what it was so that he could trust their interpretation of it. 
If this was the case, it tells us that more lay behind the king's impossible demand than just his restless agitation and his insomnia over the dream. He may have been using this dream as a means of, of testing his wise men or even ridding himself of a good many of them. He seems to have been testing their claims to have contact with their gods who alone could reveal such a secret thing as another person's dream. Could you ever tell me what I dreamt last night? I can't even tell you what I dreamt last night. I certainly can't tell you what you dreamt last night. I mean, only God could do that. Um, now, the king was young. He's not as young as Daniel, um, but he's still a young man. And he's already experienced some tremendous military success. He's a very confident young man. And it's likely that the vast majority of his wise men, especially these Chaldeans, were much older with, than him. They had served his father, with his father. So it would be understandable that he was frustrated. What do young leaders usually, who do they usually like to listen to? The, their peers, right? It would be understandable that he was frustrated with these guys and with all the gibberish of their occult practices and their pretentious loyalty to him and their lack of integrity. Don't you think their lack of integrity was much more evident to him after he had interviewed Daniel and, and uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael? But one thing we find is that his words to them indicate he suspected them of being a bunch of frauds. He said, I know you guys. You're stalling for time. You're going to tell me uh, corrupt words. You've prepared lying and corrupt words to speak to me. He understood that they were clever at drawing out enough information to, to uh, form some kind of a shrewd prognostication. You know, just give us a little bit of information, and then they could come up with, uh, they could frame an answer, you see, that was so ambiguous that it could appear they were right no matter what, you know, how things turned out. Do you ever get fortune cookies that, that are so vague and so general that they, you know, one day you're going to die? <laughs> or you're going to get sick sometime in the future, but you'll get well. You know, it's just so general. That they, and they, had, they were just like really good politicians. They could do this, and he knew it. Now let me give you some reasons for speculating why the king was using his dream as a test. Nebuchadnezzar had to have recalled his dream if he was going to know that his wise men were correct in telling it to him. At the end of verse 9, and that's really the key, at the end of verse 9, he basically told the Chaldeans he was testing them. He said, tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. What is he really interested in knowing? Yeah, he's really interested in knowing if they can tell the truth, if they have that real kind of power, but he really wants to know the interpretation. He knows the dream. He's really worried. Is that statue me? Am I going to crumble to the ground, you know, with that stone? Uh, he really is interested in knowing the interpretation. So to know if they're right in the interpretation, he's testing them to see if they can actually tell him the dream. If they could tell him his dream, he could then trust their interpretation. After all, if as they claim they could tell the future, 
through their close connection with the gods and their reading of the stars and by, by way of all their sorceries and their consultations with the spirits and with the dead and the reading of smoke and sheep livers, <laughs> then surely they could tell the past by relaying to him his dream. Which is easier, to tell the future or to tell the past? The past, you know? So if you guys are saying you can tell the future, all right, piece of cake, tell me the past. What did I dream last night? His, his words really reveal a lack of respect for these men. We detect tension between him and the Chaldeans. He likely perceived their covetous desire to exercise power over his kingdom in his absences. And was he absent from Babylon a lot? Yes, how many, ex how many trips over to Israel did he make? Three, and each time he'd besiege the city for a long time. He was gone from the palace a lot. He may have su suspected their potentially treasonous ambitions to be the ones in power. Well, so he was, he was more than simply a mean king with a quick temper. Now, he was that. He was indeed a mean king with a quick temper, but he was more than that. He was a shrewd and capable ruler. He was actually far wiser than his wise men. He perhaps wanted to rid himself of a power block that diminished his own control over the empire. So he put them to the dream test. And the test gives evidence that he suspected his counselors to be a bunch of frauds. John Butler, in his commentary on Daniel, says this, quote, One wonders if the interview with Daniel and his three friends did not cause Nebuchadnezzar because of the great contrast between these four Jews and the other wise men to begin suspecting that these professed wise men were not so wise after all, end of quote. Nebuchadnezzar was a discerning man, wasn't he? So let's look at the defense now, verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asketh such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Knowing that any tactic now to stall for time was useless because twice he said, I know you guys, you're going to stall for time till I change my mind about my decree, this certain decree that I've given you. Knowing that this was going to be useless, his advisors plead with him by making several defensive claims. In verse 10, they say there's not a man on planet Earth who could do what the king asks of them. No one could tell him his dream. Now, this admission went against their own proud claims to having supernatural powers that enabled them to discern things that others couldn't, right? They're admitting. Uh, the king had called their bluff. And shortly after, they are proven totally wrong on this, aren't they? When Daniel comes along and does exactly what they said no man on earth could do. He reveals to the king his dream, and then he interprets it. 
And who gets the glory in that? God, because Daniel also makes sure that God gets the glory in that. And then the Chaldeans accuse the king of being totally unreasonable, saying there's no king, no lord, no ruler anywhere who would ever ask anything of us, of a magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It's a rare thing. That means that's a strange thing. I mean, they're being pretty bold in telling the king, you're strange. It's a rare thing that a king was requiring of them. And then they say, no one except the gods could reveal his dream. And, and the gods didn't live among them with flesh. Now, we know one who did, right? Uh, now, in making that latter defense, they're essentially admitting that they were not in close enough contact with the gods that they claimed to see to serve, to receive the needed information from him. They're indirectly admitting a limit to their power to connect with their gods, aren't they? And they're also indirectly admitting a limit to their gods' power to connect to them. Even their gods can't tell them what the king dreamt. So they were the frauds that Nebuchadnezzar was suspecting them to be. Their supposed supernatural powers were utterly, utterly impotent. Isn't that true? Of all the powers, satanic powers of, of the world, they're impotent compared to God's power. The, their pitiful defense unknowingly laid the groundwork for Daniel to come forth, show the king, show all of them the power of the true God. On one issue, they were absolutely right. Only a God could do what the king requested. The bankruptcy of human wisdom set the stage for Daniel's divine revelation. Because for the one and only true God of this universe, guess what? The dream test was a piece of cake, right? After all, who gave him the dream to begin with? And he certainly knew the interpretation of it. In it, he was foretelling future Gentile history. Let's close with the decree, verses 12 and 13. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious. And that's not good. <laughs> and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree, the one he said was certain, went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they sought, now this time they want Daniel to be included, right? They sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Even though Nebuchadnezzar was a wise man, a shrewd man who rightly discerned that the Chaldeans were by and large frauds, yet the death sentence for them, you have to admit, is pretty harsh, pretty cruel, pretty mean-spirited, right? Why didn't he just throw them in prison or banish them somewhere? I mean, he was cruel. He was cruel. Uh, he said they were going to be cut into pieces. That's just sadistic. So at the close of chapter 1, we learned that Daniel and his friends had been blessed with knowledge and skill in wisdom and in learning. But it looked now like all, all these things that they'd been blessed with by God were in jeopardy. In fact, their very lives were in jeopardy. They're being rounded up by the Ariac, the king of the captain, to be put to death. First of all, there had been the issue of the God-given diet. If God hadn't given that diet to the Jews, they wouldn't have had that issue, right? That crisis. So first of all, there had been the issue of the God-given diet. Now there's this issue of the God-given dream that has their lives hanging in jeopardy. And yet, regardless of the stress or the danger we find, oh, 
that Daniel, now he's just short of 20, okay, 18, 19 years old, we find that he is again so cool, calm, collected, and confident in his God that he steps forward. He says, let me go before the king. I'll tell him his dream. How do you think Daniel was so confident in his God that he could get, interpret that dream? Hadn't he already been through all these tests and passed with flying colors? Every time you go through a test, what happens with your faith? It grows, it increases. And do you think somewhere along the line, Daniel knew he had been given a gift to interpret dreams? Remember Joseph learned that in the prison before he gave the, dream, the interpretation? to. I think someone had a dream. Daniel was able to interpret it. It came to pass just as Daniel had, and so he knew he had this gift. And he was going to use it to the glory of his God, wasn't he? Isn't that what we're all to do? Use our gifts to the glory of God. I'll see you next year. <laughs> Have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving, a merry, merry Christmas. And don't forget that the best gift we have ever been given is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to die, give his life for you and I. Share that message with unsaved family members, everyone you encounter over this holiday season. I love you and God bless you.